Hi, I'm Brent Stafford, and this is RegWatch by RegulatorWatch.com. Fear. It's a powerful emotion that's proven to motivate people to change the way they think, act, and even how they perceive the world around them. It's no wonder, then, the public health profession employs fear as a tactic to nudge, persuade, or even bully the public into modifying its behavior. Arousing fear in order to divert behavior through the threat of impending danger or harm is called a fear appeal. And to be effective in public health, it must operate at the population level. Thus, national panics over the so-called youth vaping epidemic and related lung illnesses are born. Joining us today to discuss fear and its manifestations in the war on vaping is Dr. Raymond Nyora, interim chair of the Department of Epidemiology and professor of social and behavioral science at NYU College of Global Public Health. For eight years, Dr. Nyora was the director of science and training at the Schroeder Institute for Tobacco Research and Policy Studies at the Truth Initiative, where he also supervised the pre- and postdoctoral training programs. Dr. Nyora has previously taught and conducted research at Brown University, Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health, the Georgetown Medical Center, and the School of Public Health at University of Maryland. He was also a former president of the Society for Research on Nicotine and Tobacco and is a deputy editor of the Nicotine and Tobacco Research Journal. Dr. Nyora, thanks again for joining us on RegWatch. Great to be here again, Brett. As I was telling you, it's a it's a TV term, but we have to make sure everyone knows that you're badass. <laughs> okay, I got to put that on my CV then. Well, that's exactly it. Well, look, we're going to jump right into this. One of the things that you guys have really carved out a solid reputation at NYU. You're you know the interim chair of the department, and you've got people that are working with you uh, that have been on our show, like Dr. David Abrams and so forth. Seems like you've got a real good team there that have carved out a reputation for harm reduction. Uh, you definitely have made a name for yourself, if you can say that, as a researcher in vaping. And I wanted to make sure that you, we immediately start off with the analysis that was just released this week on the 2018 National Youth Tobacco Survey in the U.S., for which the NY press release states that fears of a youth vaping epidemic may be overblown. <laughs> so please do tell our audience about that. Well, okay. Well, first of all, just, th you know, thanks for the accolades. Uh, I'd like to think that we do have a really, you know, good uh, research group here. And in fact, it's a bunch of people, including Dave Abrams and others who were uh, with us when we were at the uh, Truth Initiative. Um, but yeah, as to the paper, so what we did was we analyzed the uh, New York Tobacco Survey uh, data set. Uh, sorry, not New York, uh, National Youth Tobacco sure. Survey. And New York is another survey, but we anyway, there's a publicly available data set um, that wasn't so publicly available at first. Um, so back in um, late 2018, early 2019, there was a lot of uh, consternation about early reports from the CDC uh, regarding youth vaping. Um, and they put out a lot of in information about this. Well, actually, they didn't put out a lot of information. They put out some information. Um, and then they eventually got around to uh, releasing this data set. But, you know, by that time, um, you know, a lot of the, you know, interesting, maybe not so factual messages were already put out there by the CDC and the FDA. 
we got a hold of the data set, as did other researchers, and we decided, well, we need to take a closer look at things. And and for, so, for example, one of the things that was missing from the um, the CDC and the FDA presentation is when you're looking at vaping in kids, especially if you're looking at frequency of vaping, you know, is it once a month, is it several days a month, every day, that sort of thing. What they, what they didn't provide us with is information about prior or current tobacco use, meaning combustible tobacco use and cigarettes in particular. So, you know, we thought that was a pretty big omission. We went back, we looked at, at the information and found that, um, you know, perhaps not surprisingly that kids who were vaping, especially vaping frequently, were much more likely to be current or former cigarette smokers. So another way of saying this is that there were very, very few um, new vapors, meaning kids who just started vaping without using any other tobacco product. Uh, so so that, was, uh, uh, that was illuminating. And um, and that was the basis for um, you know the publication. Now, since then, a couple of other research groups have analyzed the same data and pretty much can't have come to the the same conclusion. Yeah, so when what I look at Ray, let, and let's just for a moment here make sure we hammer home here. I've got this up from the press release. So over eighty percent of youth do not use any tobacco product at all. Well, so that's the other part of it, right? I mean, when you're talking about, you know, the entire population, um, you know, most youth don't don't smoke, they don't vape, um, and, and again, the, those kids who take up vaping without prior exposure to to other tobacco products, that that number is just very very small, right. Right. And so it seems to me that one of the things that really caught my attention on this and with the way that it was worded is that this is definitely a more than just a glass half full way of looking at it. So when when you look at stats, obviously you can choose to be pessimistic with the stats, even if the stats could be read very good. Right. So, you know, talking about how few people like 80, what is it, 80, was it 86 percent or 84 percent don't vape? Right. Like, that's a great. Uh, well, welcome, that should no, be the message that everyone should be. That's having. right, and and again, it sort of depends on which way or which angle you want to come come at this. So the way that the CDC and the FDA came at it is they they declared that there's an epidemic. Okay, right. so um, it's a, it's an interesting thing when a go when government bodies declare epidemics. Usually, that's confined to things like infectious diseases. Uh, at least officially. Um, and, you know, right now we have the coronavirus virus scare that's going around. And at least in some parts of the world, that's, you know, that's a legitimate infectious disease epidemic. Sure. Well, it turns out there's no, you know, guidelines or um, rules or procedures for declaring a uh, an epidemic with regard to behaviors. So, you know, and I, and I looked and, you know, it's kind of like, where's the CDC rule book that tells, you know, people at the CDC and that ergo the government to declare an epidemic. And there's nothing, nothing like that exists. So that kind of um, upset me a little bit, uh, you know, because I, you know, it just doesn't seem to be 
you know, proper use of, of uh, you know, epidemiology methods, which, you know, again, for infectious diseases, uh, the CDC is great at. But I think they kind of dropped the ball on, on this one. I mean, and again, that was the motivation for going to look at the data ourselves and say, well, you know, what kind of an epidemic is this if, if it is an epidemic at all? So there's no guidelines then, just I'm going to get you to restate that for me if you could. So are there guidelines with the CDC on how to define an epidemic when it comes to behavior? Well, no, again, at least not to my knowledge, I couldn't, I couldn't find anything, you know, and I was expecting like, well, if something occurs in the population at a certain rate, within a certain time frame, et cetera, et cetera, then you may, you know, consider it an, you know, an epidemic or, you know, some kind of language like that, but there's really nothing like that out there. So, um, and, you know, and again, it's sort of like, well, who has the authority to, um, to use these words, really. Um, I, you know, I guess the CDC does, but, um, you know, again, it's one of those, you know, somewhat mysterious things, how, how these things work. So uh, just a couple more questions, I think, on this specific topic, and let's just keep driving down the bus here, it creaning is somewhere into uh, someplace that I'm hoping that we're gonna go. Um, so, these are the stats for 2018. So let me just get our timing exactly right. You know, I don't want to be the guy that's two years from now still talking about ah, clear and present danger and epidemic and Gottlieb and uh, lung disease and CDC deception and stuff, because that's all horrible. Uh, and, you know, I'm hoping that we move on, hopefully in a better story frame. But right now, I, there's so much that's unclear. And so Commissioner Gottlieb, former Commissioner Gottlieb, it was September 18th, 2018, when he made the statement that launched the entire epidemic thing. And while CDC is driving the bus on, this, on the data, it was FDA that drove the bus on epidemic. And so it was the FDA's announcement that it was epidemic, that was a clear and present danger. And at that point in September of 2018, they don't have any data. So was it 2017 data they didn't have? No, it had to be 2018. Oh, no. oh they, they got an early look right. at CDC data. That's what happened. Right. Um, so and, now, now and, this and is the your, data. And to your point about, you know, who was the one that I think initially called it an epidemic, I think you're right that it was um, Dr. Gottlieb. And again, I don't know where in the FDA rule book it gives authority to anyone in the FDA to declare an epidemic. So, so uh, yeah, so they got an early look. And, you know, so we got the data probably in March, April of 2019. So there was, you know, quite a gap between when they saw the data and when they released it publicly. Now, um, the same thing is going to happen and it's already happened with uh, the following year's data. So we already have you know, an early, well, we don't have the data yet. We'll probably get it sometime in the spring, but the CDC has all, uh, you know, has already, um, uh, you know, indicated that, um, you know, past 30 day use of vaping products in youth has, has gone up dramatically, you know, 20 something percent. Um, so, you know, and I don't want to minimize that. So for sure there has been some increase in uptake but the same questions remain, you know, who are these kids that are using these products? 
Are they the, you know, the current or former cigarette smokers? Do they have, you know, other risk factors that might account for why they're using these products? Um, you know, one thing that came up almost by accident when we looked at uh, the 2018 data, um, there was a single question in the NYTS about um, whether kids endorse, whether they, they use vaping products for uh, to ingest, you know, cannabis THC. Um, and, you know, depending on how you slice it, you know, over half of the kids who said that they vaped, meaning vaped anything, including nicotine, half of them also said that they had used, you know, a vaping device to vape THC. Okay, so that's pretty illuminating, right? Um, because that tells us something, you know, it gives us context. It, you know, these kids are just not just using, you know, nicotine products. They're, they're you know, they're vaping THC. So interestingly, fast forward to, to you know, 2019, it turns out that they removed that question from the 2019 survey. Um, so, I, um, so when we get the data, again, hopefully sometime this spring, uh, we won't be able to, to look at that. Now, you have to ask yourself, you know, why did they take that question out? And, you know, I don't have an answer to, to that, but it's... Well, it's, there's got to be only one answer to that. <laughs> but, they don't want to know what they don't want to know the answer. <laughs> well, that may be true, um, you know, but I, I all I know is that the question is no longer there. Uh, but we also know from, you know, just, not just the NYTS, but from other surveys that, you know, kind of cannabis use and, and, and vaping have, you know, are associated in some ways. And again, this speaks to the larger issue that, um, you know, there may be a, a, a small group of kids who are particularly vulnerable or, or, you know, prone to risk taking or whatever you want to call it. Uh, and again, not to minimize, um, you know, concern about these kids. I, I, I think, you know, that's legitimate. Um, but it's like you said, it's sort of the half, the glass half full or half empty question. You know, where do we focus? Um, and, and so, so again, I, we, you know, we need to kind of step back and say, you know, ask over and over again, what's, what's really going on at the population level? What's going on at the subpopulation level? Who are the kids who are, you know, again, they, they may be vaping, but they're probably engaging in a lot of other risky behaviors. Yeah, that is true. Um, I mean, they seem to have, they seem to zero in on nicotine as a highly risky behavior when there's so many other risky behaviors that teens do too as well, because their use of cannabis is far above the, their use of nicotine. Their use of alcohol is far right. above the use of nicotine. Right. I mean, you know, alcohol has been a concern forever, um, you know, marijuana to, to a certain degree. And I think more more so nowadays that, you know, it's at least in the U.S., it's, you know, medically available. It's legal now in several states. I think that's a tide that that will we'll never be turned back. Um, and, you, you know, so, yeah, there's there's a lot going on that, that I think we need to to pay attention to. Um, and, you know, not to mention, you know, sort of new new challenges that, um, you know, kids are facing with, um, you know, technology. And I mean, you know, you, you look at rates of suicide or su suicidality. Those are 
dramatically increasing in younger populations, which is really alarming. And, um, you know, that seems to be, you know, kind of left out of the conversation. Um, but we know, for example, that, you know, depression and smoking, drinking, these things tend to go together. So, um, so yeah, I think when we isolate, you know, one particular product, one particular substance, um, it's a very convenient thing to do, but it, it really misses the big picture. So let's, um, let's ask the direct question. Was there, is there an epidemic of teen vaping? Well, I mean, I'm not authorized to say whether there is or there isn't. Um, and, and like I said, I'm not sure that the FDA is authorized. Um, I think the CDC might be authorized to say so. But, I, but, you know, I haven't seen that word bandied about as much as it was in late 2019, uh, 2018, early 2019. Um, so yeah, I'm I'm hesitant to use to use words like that at all, just because of the point you made when you you started the segment about fear and and you know fear appeal and all of that. I mean, epidemic is a, is a strong word. I mean, it it basically is signaling to people that there is an emergency, um, and you know if if there is well, and you know take the example of coronavirus. Uh, I mean, in China, it's an emergency. It's not yet at that level here, um, but it's something that potentially is deadly. It's highly contagious, and it makes sense to think of in terms of a possible epidemic when you're talking about infectious diseases. Behaviors are not infectious diseases, though. Um, so again, it's it's you know a lot of the language that 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 is used, I think, is convenient. Um, and um, and you know used it used loosely. Well, I agree with you there. It's loosely. Well, loosely maybe you might be being nice there. Loosely, I think it might be actually very you know on purpose, right? So then it's not loosely. They're, um, they're being yeah, targeted. Um, no, I I agree. You know, yeah. you have to kind of wonder about the motivations. I mean, why are people, um, you know, using language like this? Again, it's strong language. It's strong medicine. Why are, why are we using these terms? Yeah, well, I, and I've been making the point since day one, since the, that very day uh, Commissioner Gottlieb used those terms, because it was three things that he said, right? He said there was an epidemic of teen use uh, that it posed a clear and present danger. So that's like a double whammy when it comes to uh, um, fear, and actually you know, authorizing extraordinary action by government and authorities and public health to do something about it, because those are the, those are the highest words you can get, right? Like these are, these are the words that are being used now about coronavirus or about other deadly outbreaks of, right. of pathogens, right. and they're used to quarantine, they're used to remove civil liberties, shut down airports, right. close down cities, that's what those terms are used for. And when the very agencies who have those powers to do that are using those terms, well, I mean, I, it just, it is so, it is so reckless, uh, it's beyond belief. I mean, it is crying wolf. I mean, it completely is. And the third thing, uh, the third thing was um, the line that uh, Commissioner Gottlieb said, we will not tolerate another generation 
of young people to become addicted to nicotine. Right. And well, so, yeah. Yeah, and, and again, these are very strong terms. Clear and present danger. Wasn't that a movie? <laughs> yes, it was. Who, who was in that movie? That, uh, Harrison Ford. Harrison, of course, Harrison Ford. Anyway, um, Harrison Ford should be commissioner of the FDA. Um, <laughs> but, but yeah, this is, I mean, it's scary stuff. And, and uh, the thing is that people really have, uh, well, it's, it's a little complicated. I was going to say that people have trust in government. Here in the U.S., they actually do and they don't. So they don't, people don't approve of Congress. They don't trust Congress. And I think that's all for good reasons, because politicians. Um, but they do trust, you know, government agencies like the FDA and the CDC. Um, and that trust has been, you know, pretty much well earned over, over decades and decades. So, you know, this is another concern, which is if, um, you know, if these agencies are kind of overstepping their bounds, um, it, it's it's really troubling to me because again, I, I don't want um, necessarily uh, you know for, for citizens to not trust government agencies if they're if they're doing a good job. Politicians are a different matter. But you know the government agencies are supposed to be you know strong. They're supposed to be looking out for the, the citizenry. I agree like, when you look at agencies, there's a heck of a lot of legislative power that goes into their hands and they're not, you know, representative uh, of, of the people. So there's a trust there that needs to really be maintained. And I think that trust used to be there. As, look, the bedrock of the administrative state has to be impartiality. And when the regulatory agencies no longer are acting partial, forget about even looking impartial, if they if they're if they're not no if they're not acting impartially, then there's a real problem, and it's that that undermines trust from the public side. Oh, I would I would agree, and um, you know, and you see it all all the time. I mean, you know, you think about the power of the executive branch here in the United States, and um, you know, that's come under a lot of scrutiny lately for for obvious reasons, and. You know, I can tell you it's 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 got me more and more concerned. And I think no matter which side of the fence you're on, politically speaking, you have to say, wait a second here. If 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 a you know, a branch of the government has that much power over these agencies, which is which I agree should be, you know, very impartial and and, um, you know, to the degree possible independent, then we're then we're in, a you know, a boatload of trouble. Because then everything can become politicized, and everything's about scoring political points. And I think we're, you know, we're seeing that play out. I think there's a uh, congressional hearing coming up this Tuesday, as a matter of fact, where um, you know the Democrats are going to try to recreate the whatever it was the 1994 tobacco hearings, and they're going to try to, you know, uh, put put the you know vaping company executives try to, you know, push them into a corner and get them to, you know, admit to things that they don't want to admit. Um, but it's all, you know, it's all politicking. It's all um, posturing, um, you know, at this point, because there's no way that any legislation that they might want will ever be passed in, in, uh, in this leg legislative season. I mean, it's just not going to happen.
So I've been a bit buried technology and all these. We've, this is our third cast this week. So I didn't know about that. So they're, they're trying to get the hand. Uh, yes. You know, the nine. I, I, I swear we, we, you know, that nicotine is not addictive. I swear that we don't sell to kids, uh, whatever it may be. Um, it's a pure setup. Unbelievable. Uh, but it's, yeah, it's happening on Tuesday. So it's just complete theater. It's, it's just, it's sickening. Well, well, right. And then, you know, again, at least, you know, speaking for myself, this is what, you know, distresses me about 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 government or one of the things or a lot of things. Um, and and so you have to ask, where does this the common citizen um, play a role in this process? How do we get a voice? Uh, I'm a little bit privileged because I, you know, I can be invited to testify at congressional hearings and, you know, I can get involved in, in, in that process to some degree. But, you know, where does the ordinary citizen stand one way or another? They have to rely on their representatives. Um, and, you know, this is where I think representative government in so many different ways just fails us. Uh, but that's a longer <laughs> conversation. Well, that's one I'm always willing to have. There's no <laughs> doubt. Um, it strikes me. It, it strikes me that we're going to move. I want to. We're going to move into the CDC, and our segue really kind of is this congressional testimony because the last time we had you on the show was in July of 2019, and that's it was right. just three weeks before. Uh, the lung hysteria broke out, and you were actually testifying at the congressional sub committee hearing on uh, Juul and the impact of nicotine addiction, correct? The, yeah, and I think it was the day after that we had our, our segment, isn't that right? So we're pretty close. Yeah, that's right. Well, and I, my editing of the segment, because it was a, uh, we were still doing our tapes, we hadn't gone fully live yet, so I had enough time to hold off on our edit to get a chunk of your uh, testimony into the piece, and then we released oh, there it. there you go, right, right. <laughs> so, so yeah, and, and let me tell you, that was that was theater writ large um for, for for many reasons not the least of which is we were in a hearing room in in the halls of congress uh, at the same time that the uh, Mueller hearings were going on about investigation into president trump's um you know behaviors sure. so so <laughs> that was the backdrop um and then i was um you know, it was basically the Democrats who were running the show. And the way these hearings work is, is um, you know, they run the show, but the other side, in this case, the Republicans have a presence and, and uh, all of the, um, uh, you know, Congress people can, can ask questions. The witnesses, and I was one, um, I, are given an opportunity to prepare a statement and they read their statements and then, um, you know, there's a back and forth in terms of questions. What I found to be particularly interesting is not a single Democrat asked me a question. Um, it was only the Republicans. Um, and now I, just to remind you, I was there, I, you know, to pr provide this, pers hopefully the perspective that was kind of balanced. I think what was left out of, of the hearing and, and the, the reason that I agreed to, to testify was, there was very little discussion about the potential benefits of vaping for uh, for cigarette smokers, and it was you know it was um, a recent the recent um, clinical trial 
was published in New England Journal of Medicine. And so I put things like that into my testimony. So I was there to really advocate for the idea of harm reduction for, you know, for adults. But as I said, um, the Democrats just ignored me outright. Well, you know, that's because they, they, if they can't rip you apart, because they know that, A, you're learned, you're prestigious, you know, you know what you're talking about. Um, you're representing a school that, you know, it'd be hard for them to rip apart NYU. So where do they go? They, instead of, you know, they just have nowhere to go. I, I suppose. Anyway, so that was, you know, again, it was interesting, but it was clearly just all, you know, manipulated and set up. And it was it was theater. It was, you know, public relations, um, you know, whether my testimony had, you know, any impact whatsoever remains a mystery to me. Well, you know, God bless you for being there. That's all I can say. So let, let's move to three weeks later, then describe if you could kind of do a little bit of a narrative for me um, in our audience, because you are um, predisposed to be fair when it comes to the vaping issue, what were your first thoughts when you heard of this lung scare? Because it also broke uh, with a full public relations campaign behind it. Well, my first reaction was, you know, wow, what the heck is going on? You know, there's something clearly scary happening and um and everyone at least at first was scrambling to to figure this out but the narrative at least you know um well right from the get-go was you know everybody should stay away from you know any kind of vaping product including you know nicotine vapes and then then shortly thereafter there were little you know clues that came out that suggested wait a second here you know there it, it could be you know, vaping products that deliver, you know, THC in some form or other. And as, as information began to drip out, no pun intended, it became more and more clear, at least to me, that, um, you know, the focus should be narrowing on, um, you know, vape, uh, uh, THC vaping products. And then we started to hear rep reports about, you know, possible adulteration of these products, et cetera, et cetera. And, and I, I think as, as we got more and more information, as the CDC labs themselves, as the FDA started to investigate it, to me, it just became, um, you know, more and more clear that it was um, some kind of a THC vaping product that, that was responsible for uh, you know, for these injuries and deaths. And I think, you know, last week the CDC published some some more stuff. And if you look at, for example, um, the cases of so-called E-Valley, and I forget what that even stands for, but anyway, uh, that, are, that were confirmed, I mean, you know, the vast majority, 90 plus percent uh, tested positive for, for T or, you know, there were, the, the the users reported that they had that, that they had um, you know used THC uh, adulterated THC products. Now they didn't know that they were adulterated when they used them. I think the the thing that got me in particular was when I read a report, investigative report that I think was published in um, Leafly, um, and and it was in and again this is my opinion, but it seemed to me to be spot on that they traced 
you know, the problem to this um, distributor of, of a, a, a liquid that was used as a cutting agent uh, to dilute the, the THC. And they, the name of the product um, is Honeycut. Um, and I think the, the reason that they used it is because it had the desirable properties of being able to dilute the, the THC liquid in, in so that it had, you know, people could, could smoke it or, you know, vape it. And, and then, but it had a good consistency and a good color and that sort of thing. So, so it was easy to sell. Um, now it, it happened to contain, you know, vitamin E derivatives, vitamin E acetate, which I, I doubt that. The purveyors of this product um, knew beforehand that this was going to be a problem. Um, you know, I, I really doubt it. But you know, it turned out to be deadly, and um, and and it was you know it was spreading like any kind of real epidemic, where you know it's kind of localized geographically, and then it gets spread sort of in, in a black market. And so the other interesting to me thing to me rather was just the epidemiology of this when you think about well okay if it's related to nicotine vaping why is it occurring you know in these pockets geographic pockets um, why is it happening all of a sudden why isn't it happening in other parts of the world um, you know because you know nicotine vape you know so so all these indicators are telling you that it's got to be something that's very, very specific. That's that's temporally bound with with respect to um, you know the exposures, um, and and oh by the way you know the the, the rates of of uh, of spread of, of the of E Valley have have you know decreased dramatically um, you know recently, and that's probably because the the honey cut or whatever word got out. Um, there's probably been some enforcement activity about this and so forth. So the cases have have started to dwindle, which is actually a really good thing. Um, but you know, people are still vaping nicotine products. So if it was nicotine, we'd still be seeing, you know, case after case coming out, and that's just not happening. So so in a way, you know, here's a classic epidemiology story that where it was complete conflation of vaping these adulterated THC products with, you know, vaping nicotine. And, and you know, just look up the word conflation in the, in the dictionary. It basically means that these two things became indistinguishable. And that's what happened. And that became the narrative. And that drove everything. Now, the conflation, the conflation, uh, Dr. Nayora, Obviously, you know, let's just say, you know, hypothetically, could that type of conflation happen with the world's most prestigious um, infectious disease agency? So prestigious, in fact, that the Chinese communist government um, has allowed the CDC or begged the CDC or however it goes. Uh, the CDC is the ones that's doing all uh, of the coronavirus work, not China's national uh, Center for Disease Control that they've got. So the CDC clearly is the world's, you know, preeminent organization. So is it possible that they could make, you know, this kind of a mistake on, you know, by accident? Well, 
you know, so there's two perspectives. You know, you could, you, first of all, you have to ask whether they, there was conflation on their part. I would argue that there was, but other people would argue, well, you know, they were just approaching this with an abundance of caution. You know, beware of, uh, beware of what you're vaping. And at least initially, I, you know, you could argue, well, that makes sense. You know, you want, you know, this is scary stuff and you want to make sure that, um, you know, people are aware. Um, but they didn't let up on that story uh, up until, again, I think last week. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, um, and I think that's the point. <laughs> I think that proves the point. So and but and the FDA actually let up on it a bit earlier than than, than they the they did a full let up on it on October fourth. Right. FDA FDA made it absolutely clear on October fourth that it was THC. So that's the real issue here is that less than a, you know it's a month and a bit and FDA went well we're out of this story. Yeah, and and again you know um, I, we just don't know what was going on in the, in the, you know within the CDC was it an abundance of caution was it some sort of a you know sort of a you know a politically motivated um, set of messages was it just you know people messing up you know it, I I don't think we'll it, I don't think it'll be easy easy to find out. Oh no, there that that's the deep state. Uh, the CDC <laughs> is a deep state. You know, you've got your military industrial complex and you've got your biomedical infectious disease uh, uh, complex. And CDC is not just about disease. Let's remember they're responsible for almost every behavior stat that's out there, whether well, it's rape so and crime and guns. Yeah, uh, yeah, and and so this is the thing, right? You know, again, I think that CDC is the world's eminent, you know, par excellence, uh, you know, infectious disease group, you know, without, without doubt. And, um, and it may be the case that, you know, maybe they didn't have their A team on, on, on oh. this issue. Oh, well, let me, let me um, just stop you there for a sec. It was their Ebola team, 125 uh, people from their Ebola team. They just got off of the Ebola fight and they task their Ebola team. So when you send your Ebola team to look for something, into what should be, what is a product tainted issue? If you send them for Ebola, they're from the Ebola team, they're gonna find Ebola. <laughs> well, I don't think there was any Ebola, thank goodness. But, um, but that kind of speaks to the issue of that they didn't really, you know, know how to deal with this, you know? And, and you know, you might say, well, maybe that was a good idea on its face to bring in, you know, the the Ebola team. But, um, you know, in retrospect, the Ebola people are probably not good at dealing with, you know, issues like this. Um, I, I can only hope that the the CDC has, has kind of learned from this. Um, and, but it's also, you know, it's, we also have to rely on on the FDA and you know the government agencies talk to each other there are you know various levels of coordination and cooperation um, and so you know it's not clear that that was you know that that was necessarily um, you know handled in in the in the best way now again you know hindsight's 2020 and it's easy for us to say well you know they they messed up but um, let me uh, read this to you um, so this is from uh, behind the scenes of CDC's vaping investigation, October 25th, uh, and this is NPR. 
And they, yeah. had, some, they had some pretty extraordinary uh, uh, coverage here. And uh, give, let's just see here what's the right one. Right. So uh, given the scope and mysterious nature of the illness, the CDC set up an incident command center to coordinate its response. In elevating an issue like this, a shoe shot says the CDC has directed about 140 scientists and other staff to step away from their normal work and give their full attention to the crisis. They are deploying epidemiologists, communication experts, and laboratory staff and our disease detectives to work on this issue, which six months ago they were not focused on. The CDC uses this high-profile approach to take on major new outbreaks such as Zika, SARS, and the 2001 anthrax attacks. In fact, an incident, and excuse me, in fact, an incident team responding to the Ebola outbreak in the Democratic Republic of Congo is still at work at CDC headquarters inhabiting the main emergency response center. And then they go on to talk about even that team is even working on it. So, it's a, you know, this is a really long story. I mean, they, they, fully, they fully cover it. You know, again, they're uh, on the face of it, you know, they were taking it seriously, which they should. Um, but th then you have to ask, well, why didn't they get to the, you know, what appears to be the correct conclusion any sooner than they did? And they still, and honestly, to be fair, they, they even today they, it feels like they're kicking and screaming, being brought to heel. It's not yeah. like it's not like they've hold, held a huge press conference and gave, given out all the facts. You know, here's something that would be helpful uh, if to restore some confidence with the CDC would be a, a full, detailed uh, understanding of the nature of the criminal investigation that must be going on. You, a whole, the entire world uh, heard about this. Uh, it impacted, um, you know, continents. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, destroyed most of the vaping industry to a large extent. I mean, they destroyed the virtue of vaping, and um, and they've driven people back to smoking. And that's all happened because some people have done some bad things with certain products. And it just seems to me that there's no criminal investigation going on. Over what sixty people have died. Well, there may be criminal investigations going on we don't really know so so yeah i mean the fallout is that you know and and this is the worst thing i i hear which is you have people you know smokers who switch to, to vaping who now out of fear are are going back to smoking cigarettes and it's like that's that's going backwards and um so there's that damage that's that's you know been done and, and being done and then on on the um you know, on the cannabis side of things, uh, you know, it's it ought to also be a wake-up call that, you know, something needs to happen with respect to, you know, I don't know, regulation or monitoring or quality control of 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 cannabis products. I mean, if 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 this sort of thing is happening in this space, uh, is this just the first of many, you know, of, of kinds of these things? It's it's really concerning. And then, you know, well, whose responsibility is it to to look after these things? Yeah, no, I agree. And quite frankly, I mean, from a technology point of view, it's an effective way to deliver a substance to the bloodstream without the combustion, obviously, right? So it doesn't matter what it is so to think that to think that down the road that it's you know the technology is going to be containable uh, it's just too simple no I, I don't think the technology is at, is at all containable um 
and, and and so you know again this is my opinion but when you have a situation like that it seems to me the prudent thing to do would be to focus on issues like quality and safety product standards those sorts of things which you know any sane um, company would would want to you know adopt because you know again it's a customer facing issue which is you know we don't you know if people are responsible they don't want to you know poison their customers I mean they want to sell you know responsible safe quality products and so I, I I, you know, it's again, it's puzzling to me why th th there hasn't been more of a push to kind of go in that direction. Now, I know that the you know FDA Center for Tobacco Products has been criticized along those lines. It's like, well, you know, why haven't you focused more on on quality control and so forth? And and again, it seems to me that I, I you know, at least I haven't heard a satisfactory answer from them. Um, but but I do think that that's you know that's the way to go. In a way, it's low hanging fruit, you know, to basically say, well, you know, let's set up some standards, um, let's set up some quality control processes that that are kind of minimum and that everyone can follow, you know, even voluntarily. Um, and uh, and then if people want to do better than that, then you know they're welcome to do that. Well, and certainly the industry would welcome that. They they would. You know they've been self-regulating as much as they can. Well, uh, and, and this, this whole process. And this is the thing. I think you know, the industry can also be criticized to a certain degree because it's like, well, where's the where's the unified voice? You know, where where's where are the protocols for quality control? And there are some that are that have been out there and floating around that look pretty good. But you know, you haven't seen this cohesiveness, people coming together. Um, but this is where a government agency like the FDA could step in and say, hey, we have a year. Let's pull together a working group and come up with with product standards, you know, and, it, you know, it doesn't have to be legally mandated. It, it, it could be, you know, uh, you know, a voluntary coalition with the FDA leading it. You know, saying you know we can we can provide advice, we can bring in experts to you know to guide this this process and and you know develop guidelines, um, but that hasn't happened. I'm uh, it's a bit curious. You 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 have a very precise knowledge and understanding of uh, the lack of unity amongst kind of the 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 industry on the standards issue. How did you come by that? Well, you know, I've been interested in this stuff for a long time. So, you know, I'd go to all kinds of meetings, the uh, Tobacco Merchants Association, uh, GTNF, GFN, you know, you name it. And um, and I was, you know, and this was, I guess you could say, you know, the past, you know, five or six years. And at a lot of those meetings, you know, these issues would come up and and then you'd see little, you know, groups start to sprout off, Caresta, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And again, they would be doing what looks like good, good things, but there was no kind of central coordination going on. Um, and, and, and I think that was the piece, really. Sorry, I keep turning my mic off when I have a drink there. Um, yeah, it's it's hard. It's really hard because you've got an industry that's young, obviously, and it's filled with people who 
sometimes we're, we're not full business people beforehand, you know, created some e-juice and a couple of years later, you know, they've got a lot of money and a great company. And, um, but, you know, I think ultimately in the end, it's been the complete lack of, of uh, I want to use the word guidance because that's got a technical term with the FDA, but leadership. And, and when there has been leadership, um, uh, that Gottlieb brought to the table. It was one where he, he gave a path and a runway. And I do believe that, that those four years, five years that he gave was designed to do that. But then that 180 turn that he did on the epidemic and everything else, I mean, that just threw everything, you know, out of whack. So I think for the industry, I know that from our reporting and understanding is that so many of them just can't trust what it's gonna be in two months or six months or whatever. So even when it comes to the PMTA process and putting the money down, even for those who have the money, which is just exorbitant amount of money, but even those that do have it, it's hard for them to make the bet because. Oh, well, right. And, and I think you could say that what's happened over the past year in particular is, is kind of a perfect storm. You know, you, you have just a lot of fractionation. You have these, you know, at, epidemic, pseudo epidemics, you have the conflation, you have the youth issue, um, and and you have, you know, politicians and, and advocacy groups whose hair is on fire, you know, constantly, and, and it's the perfect storm. Um, and, and so I understand it, you know, this is a tricky environment to be working in. And, um, uh, you know, we're gonna, we're gonna have to wait and see what what plays out. But you know, May is roll is going to roll around pretty quickly, and um, you know we're going to have to see who's who's left standing. Well, we'll have to see how they enforce it. There's, I mean, at some point here, the the full civil disobedience will be everybody keeps their doors open, and yeah, that's part of it. And then you know, there's going to be naturally a you know a thriving black market, um, you know, depending on on how draconian the regulations become. Um, you know, it's like you, you don't have to be uh, a genius to, fig to figure that stuff out. Um, so what's the contingency plan then for, you know, for the black market? Um, you know, I, I haven't heard anything. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's amazing when we're discussing it on Monday uh, with an advocate from New York. And it's just, you know, basically it's going to shove a billion dollar industry in New York straight into the same black market that's responsible for, you know, the deaths and illnesses that were associated with THC vaping. Yeah, um, you know, one, one thing that I heard not too long ago, which was fascinating to me, you know, I'm in New York City now. And so half or more of the combustible cigarettes that people buy in New York City are contraband. They're illegal, they're black market. Yes, that's, uh, yeah, that is, uh, that's what we heard too as well from Andrew Osborne on, on Monday. Let, let's jump in, I wanna, I wanna make sure, mindful of your time and, and we're gonna still got a little bit more to do here. I wanna go to um, this because I wanna read some of the quotes from this guy who's fantastic, his name is Frank Ferrati, uh, Frady, Frady, Frady. That's it, Frady. That's how you pronounce it. Frank Frady, and he's emeritus professor of sociology at the University of Kent in the UK. He is well known for his work on sociology of fear, education, therapy, culture, paranoid parenting, sociology of no and sociology of knowledge. Basically, this guy owns fear. I mean, like he owns it, right? With his seminal work in 1997 called Culture of Fear. 
In 2005, he had another book come out called Politics of Fear. And in 2018, which is the one that I'm going to read a couple quotes from today, um, he released How Fear Works, Culture of Fear in the 21st Century. That came out in 2018. Didn't get a chance to put the quote um, up onto a slide. So I'm just going to leave this slide up so you don't need to stare uh, at my face. Let me just read this first quote. I've just got three. We'll do one and then let's have a chat over each um, Dr. Nayora. So here it is. The transformation of people's natural anxiety about the safety of children into a cultural obsession is closely associated with the moral disorientation and mistrust that prevails in Western societies. Society has unwittingly become estranged from the values such as courage, judgment, reasoning, responsibility that are necessary for the management of fear. It was the adoption of new methods of socializing young people that served as a catalyst for the ascend ascendancy of the culture of fear. Young people are socialized to feel fragile and overawed by uncertainty. Wow. And that's that's the stuff. Um, yeah, I was just vaguely familiar with uh, this author, so now I'm actually intrigued to take a closer look at, at his work. Yeah, like, I mean, you know, it's it, because we all know that there's been some real troubles in Western society overall and, and you know, a complete, uh, well, you know, I'll use my language, but a complete destruction of tradition, authority and truth. Right. So the concept of truth, of course, it went, it's so funny that the left or the progressive left will say, you know, uh, post-truth and they talk about it in this kind of snide way, like they're not responsible for it and how somehow their opponents are responsible for it when no you're responsible for it so truth and knowledge have been undermined and we talked about that a little bit in our pre-interview and so when when it just seems to be facts and facts can be formulated and manufactured and and so forth you don't really have knowledge you've just got narrative and fact kind of thing right well you know peer, fear is is powerful stuff I mean, we, we, we all know that, um, but it's also, you know, kind of like the, you know, the, the genie coming out of the bottle that, you know, how do you, how do you control it? How do you harness it? Um, and, and obviously if you're working with, you know, in, with a fear-based model, your motives can't necessarily be good ones. Um, but, you know, t if you look at historically how, you know, fear, you know, motivates uh, a lot of a lot of behaviors but um how do societies that work under fear motivation how do they manage well they manage with control structures totalitarian you know, totalitarian structures and so forth and in some ways what we're we're seeing is you know the the resurgence of 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 fear um and what you said about knowledge plays into that because what's true anymore and who can you trust um and i think we're in a place where we don't know where this is where this is going to lead us in terms of our you know cher cherished ideas about uh safe and just societies with structures that that are uh, that ensure you know fairness and and equity and equality and all that i think I think we're in the in the middle of, of some something 
some kind of a, a of a churning, and I'm not sure where we're going to end up after after it's all said and done. Yeah, and um, I will agree with that. It's um, it's striking to me because um, there seems to be I've always known in my life uh, two kinds of people: the people that uh, were for change, and the people who are against change. And I may have been on one side at one time, and I'm definitely in, a, in the other camp now, but it's not fearing change. I'm so upset about, about it being constructed that way, and I've always known it that way. But there seems to be one particular side of an argument, and change really seems to be at the heart of it, where they believe that um, change is good, all change is good, change, 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 and keep moving forward. If you want to call that progressive, that's fine. You know, that might sound too political, but that is what it is. So how come it is that the people that are so hell-bent and obsessed with the future are also the same ones that are the biggest entrepreneurs of fear? Well, again, you know, fear is, the, is, a, is a motivating force. And, and, and I would have to say, you know, again, step back. What are the motives, you know? Um, and, you know, I can't say, but you have to ask that question. Why, why are people using, you know, fear as such a powerful weapon, a cudgel? Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, to, to your point about sort of the, the people that want things to stay the same versus those that, that like and, and want to encourage change, you know, I think the best societies are those that have a balance of those attributes, right? And not necessarily people versus people, but within individuals. There's a little bit of a conservative part of us, there's a little bit of a liberal progressive part of us, and we kind of go back and forth between those two things, and it's, and it's the balance that's, that's important, and I think we've gotten, gone, you know, gotten that part kind of out of whack, because again, it comes down to, you know, who do you trust, who do you believe, how do you know how, how to trust anyone or anything anymore? Uh, you know, given the information explosion, um, we're we're lost at sea, <laughs> and and again, I'm not sure where it's where it's gonna where it's gonna shake out. It's hard to say. I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful that something will start to settle in, um, but but it's uh, it's hard to know what that's gonna be. So, let's talk a minute about harm reduction because. Harm reduction, when I, and specifically tobacco harm reduction, it seems to be something that you would think that would be a natural go-to place for so many people. But yet, the you know some of the strongest voices, at least within public health, in in our in my perspective, from what I've seen, a lot of people that are you know pro needle exchange and pro harm reduction when it comes to heroin and so forth, they are some of the most you know anti nicotine vaping people around. Right, and that's that's kind of the part of the paradox, right, of, of harm reduction, because you do see, you know, public health people as kind of being the champion of, of you know, dr- drug-related harm reduction, risky sex, other risky behaviors. It's, and, and so, you know, what, again, come back to motivation, well, why do people understand and encourage, you know, the harm reduction perspective for, for these other risky things? Um, and, you know, I think part of it is, you know, respect for the individual, respect for personal autonomy, um, the belief that, you know, education, um, you know, and knowledge 
you know, based on science will, uh, you know, allow people to make, um, you know, educated decisions in terms of their own, you know, behaviors. But yet, as you noted, when it comes to tobacco, ah, uh, but yet tobacco harm reduction fits perfectly within, you know, the, the, more, the broader harm reduction framework. Um, so, so again, it's, it's a paradox that I, I think is driven by, you know, by emotion, um, by, by, you know, the, these kind of, you know, forces that, that have nothing to do with reason or evidence or science or truth or knowledge, etc. <laughs> that's all that's, uh... but, but, you know, but they're powerful. And 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 it and it's it's really tough to figure out how do we get through this as a public health community, um, and this is you know this is the world that I live in, which is talking to my public health colleagues and saying, listen, you know we have to kind of come together on this. If you believe in in harm reduction, you, you know you have to you have to go for the whole thing, um, and 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 I you know and we have to talk it through, you know what's the barrier. What what you know what what are the problems? How do we how do we you know overcome this? I, I think at least again in the world that that I operate in, there's there's dialogue and it's happening. And but that, I don't think that's true everywhere. No, I totally agree. And and let me I was just uh, grabbing something here um, as you were talking. This was uh, your colleague uh, David Abrams' um, piece uh, article from I guess. When would it have been? Uh, I guess I'll have to grab it here. It's always good to know the date. Do you know this one? I'm on it too. Yeah, that's right. There you are. <laughs> Absolutely, that's right. There you are. So, um, so this is fantastic. This piece was great. We had uh, Dr. Abrams on. This would have been October of 2018 that he came on right. uh, to talk about this paper. And then, and you know, as we're wrapping up here, this is why I've gone into the harm reduction thing because I want us to spend a bit of time on here because harm reduction is risk. I mean, you, to talk about harm reduction, you're talking about risk reduction. And if there's problems with understanding of what risk is, which is the quotes here that I've got from, uh, from Ferretti. Um, and so why don't we just walk through this a little bit for everybody, because there's this continuum of risk, right? Right. So, so let me just say more generally. So life is risk, okay? And it's unavoidable. Um, so if if risk is you know everywhere uh, in various forms, then what's the response? Well, the response is to to mitigate that risk. And you know risks are on a continuum, and risk mitigation is on a continuum. And and so you know the risk continuum for tobacco products, I think at this point is fairly obvious. You know where the combustible products are. If the you know if the smoke is inhaled, um, it's pretty toxic. And then you start to work backwards, and you know you have lower uh, risk products. And again, you know I'm convinced that um, you know especially things like certain kinds of uh, you know oral products, Swedish snooze, some va you know most vaping products, if not all are, you know, substantially, you know, less risky. But, you know, it gets back to what we were talking about earlier about, you know, product standards and quality control. 
we can always think about better ways of mitigating risk, and that's what harm reduction is about. But you can only mitigate risk if you know what the risk is, and if you know about ways that you can mitigate that risk. And sometimes that's specialized knowledge, but it shouldn't be specialized knowledge because we're talking about the products that people use, you know, in their everyday lives in the everyday world. Um, and and that's where you know knowledge and information and truth, um, you know, becomes super important. Let me ask you last final couple questions here, Matt, for sure. And then we'll let you get on with your Friday and weekend. Thank you so much for uh, giving us the end of your week. I, this is a hard time always to do these kinds of things. Um, this is an out of the blue question. Uh, well, not not out of the blue for you, not for me. Um, how many people in the United States? this year or last year say um are going to die from smoking related diseases so oh i should know this off the tip of my tongue but you know we have what close to 40 million smokers and i think the you know the the latest estimates are, are something close to a half a million people die from smoking related illnesses you know each year it's it's in the it's in that ballpark and the reason is because smoking is so toxic that it affects virtually every kind of bodily system um and you know it's just bad stuff and it's gonna you know it's gonna increase heart disease and all kinds of cancers and you you know you you name it there you know probably every disease that you can think of is going to be impacted negatively in some way by by smoking Agreed. Now the number is around is four hundred and eighty thousand. There you what, go. That's what they have. So how many people uh, ten years ago died of smoking related illnesses? I think, to the best of my knowledge, around the same estimate. Um, um, how many know, people died twenty years ago from smoking related illnesses? There, there you it, have it. It's my the memory. same number. Okay. It's the same number. <laughs> For, yeah. for over, as far back as I can find in our research, it's about, I can get far enough back that I found for like, in for 30 years, that number of year, of the number of people that are dying from smoking related disease is the same number in the United States for 30 years. Right. How is that possible? That's a good question. Um, you, you know, the, it's not an easy exercise to put all the information together to come up with these estimates. Um, but what I'd recommend if you're curious is to kind of go to some of the recent papers. I know there's there are some data-based papers where you can kind of go through the numbers. But, you know, what I tell people with any, any, any scientific endeavor is take a look yourself. See if, if you can understand it. Do the numbers make sense? You know... You don't rely necessarily on just the scientists to, to, you know, tell you and convince you of these things. Nowadays, everyone can get a hold of this information. Now, you may need someone to help you interpret things or to explain things. But um, yeah, these are these are good questions. Yeah, it's, and I bring it up because uh, thank you. Uh, and the reason why it's a tragic reason why it's because it, one of the because I first started thinking about this um, because public health wasn't taking tobacco harm reduction seriously. And you'd go, but what about the half a million people that are dying each year? And they just think, eh, you know, whatever. And okay. And then I keep hearing that number, but I really do have to tell you the second 
I saw that story on CBS in October, August 23rd, actually, August 23rd, uh, about the lung illness and the language they used, and they called it vaping-related lung disease. The very first time that I'd heard that, it was like national news, smoking-related diseases, vaping-related lung disease. And I went, oh my God, they're lying about this. Could they be lying about that? And that's why I went back and started going back through, and the number's not changed. So well, well, it makes me wonder about it makes me wonder about whether or not that number of smoking related disease deaths has been politicized. That's well, all. you know, I, I, I can't speak to that. But, but again, I think it's fair to basically say, where do these numbers come from? I mean, I, I think it's undeniable that the numbers are going to be high. Oh, sure. Um, <laughs> And, and I know that they have done some recalibration over the years in terms of being able to count, um, you know, what is a smoking-related illness. Uh, but, yeah, it's, I think it, it would be informative to kind of go back and say, well, how do did, how did they put these numbers together and so forth. And, by the way, it's not just, you know, the United States. This, um, you know, there are estimates of, you know, worldwide deaths and so forth and, uh, you know, that come out of the World Health Organization and, and other bodies, um, you know, and, and it, it, I think this, I think it's important work, but again, it's, it's fair game. Everyone should take a close look and, and, you know, try to understand, you know, where these numbers are, are coming from. So lastly then, uh, Dr. Nayora, what is next uh, in terms of the research around vaping and harm and so forth? You guys have been you know, knocking a few balls out of the park here. Um, are you going for home runs uh, for the rest of the year? Well, I don't know about home runs, but uh, it's not baseball season now anyway. So, um, so you know, we two things. One is you know, we're very interested in people who are doing, um, you know, uh, intervention studies, randomized trials, testing to see whether, you know, vaping products of various sorts actually confer a benefit in terms of people quitting smoking. We are not doing a lot of that work ourselves, um, although for reasons that, you know, it's a long story, but other people are. So we like to keep a close eye on that. The, the, the second part is that we, we tend to a lot of time scrutinizing so-called observational studies, national surveys, et cetera, et cetera. And part of the reason that we, we take particular interest in that is that there's, uh, there's a lot of, um, shall we say, you know, either unscrupulous science going on or to be more charitable just people making honest mistakes with this stuff and and to be fair it's this it's hard and 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 it's easy to make mistakes when you're analyzing that kind of data anyway we try to you know take a more critical eye with studies like that and and you know try to um, improve the methodology as much as we can so that we can recover you know what we think is the truth that that may be coming out of these studies. Do you think? Do you guys think that you have it right? Do you think you have it right compared to the others? Uh, of course, but you have to challenge us. If somebody thinks we don't have it right, then we need to hear about it and have a discussion and and you know and look at the data and figure it out. 
um, you know, we can claim to be right, but, um, you know, we, we have to be able to withstand the challenge. Excellent. Well, Dr. Nayora, thank you so much for joining us today on Reg Watch. I really do appreciate it. If you could just hang tight right there, I'll just talk to you right after I do the close. But thank you very much. All right. A pleasure. Thank you. Well, that's it for this edition of Reg Watch. Uh, please go to support.regulatorwatch.com and uh, see about contributing uh, financially to our show. We obviously need your help to make this happen. And while you're online, don't forget to like us on Facebook and please follow us on Twitter. For regulatorwatch.com, I'm Brent Stafford.